Well, good morning. It is very wonderful to see all of you. Would you please open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 14? If you don't have a Bible, then we would love to get one in your laps. Raise your hands and we'll get it to you. Please feel free to keep this Bible if you would like. Keep it and give it away or you can leave it in your seat when you leave. I do want to reiterate one, one thing that Andy said at the beginning of the service uh, as you're turning to John 14 is that this is a special Sunday where, where at the beginning of second service we're going to have three baptisms. And so we strongly encourage all of you to stay to first vacate your seats so second service can come in and sit, but then to stand around, stand, just fill in the gaps so that we can rejoice in seeing this display of the gospel as people go public with their faith. And we as a church family affirm that public display and acknowledge uh, their walk with Christ together. So please stay if you can for that. We'd love to have you. Well, with that, we are continuing to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. Uh, we are slowly working our way through John chapter 14, and by God's grace, we will close out that chapter today. Our verses are 28 to 31. If you're taking notes, the sermon title this morning is this, Rejoice, Jesus Loves the Father. Well, if you would, look with me at verses 28 to 31. I'll read them, and then we will look to the Lord together in prayer. Jesus is in the middle of speaking, and he says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we pray this morning that as we have opened up our Bibles, that you, by your Spirit, would open up our hearts so that you would satisfy us with your love this morning. The love that is exclusively found in the death, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who lived that sinless life in our place, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave as our champion, defeating Satan, sin, and death. So satisfy us, Lord, with your love. Lord, also would we Meet your word with faith. Would we meet your word as those who rejoice at finding great treasure? Please accomplish that in our hearts this morning. And Lord, for all of us, let us worship our way through your word preached. To that end, Lord, would you let the word of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, the all of God's people said, Amen. As you work through John 14, we saw in the opening verse that Jesus tells the apostles to let not their hearts be troubled. And last week together, we heard Jesus say that same statement again, let not your hearts be troubled. 
And that woven throughout all of this famous upper room discourse is Jesus giving his farewell and final words to the apostles. They're confused, their hearts are troubled, they're afraid, they're unsure. And there's a shocking question that's implied all throughout this this chapter and indeed these next chapters all the way through chapter 17. How is it even possible... How is it even possible that for both the apostles and us, how is it even possible that the best thing for them and for us is that Jesus would physically leave? That's what, that's what Jesus says. That the best thing for them is the opposite of what they would think is the best thing for them. If you spend any time reading and rereading the Upper Room Discourse, you discover that Jesus has a very strange way of comforting the disciples and Jesus has a very strange way of comforting you and I at least not as we would expect to be comforted he comforts them and he comforts us by giving them and us deep theology Jesus gives them and us a deeper understanding of who the triune God is and the mysteries of God's glorious gospel plan And this is how Jesus comforts us and them by his spirit, with the magnificent and mysterious truths of the word of God. Now, on the surface of it, if you've been traveling through John 14 with us, on the surface, Jesus teaching these truths are so deep, they actually hurt our heads. And so it's hard to understand then how head-hurting truths, the Trinity, Mysteries of the gospel, they seem more confusing than they do comforting, and yet Jesus has promised, and Jesus has his reasons for our hearts not to be troubled. So today, as we close out John 14, we focus on three more complex truths. It's as if Jesus has saved the best for last. And so each of the three points this morning are designed by Jesus to move your heart from whatever troubles whatever plagues and problems you've brought into the room this morning, the truths that Jesus has for us, the complexity of them, is meant to decomplexify your sorrows. And so Jesus is going to move us from being troubled to rejoicing by these three truths. If you're taking notes, here's the outline this morning. Point number one, rejoice. Jesus is with the Father. That's verses 28 and 29. Then second, rejoice, Jesus has conquered the devil. That's verse 30, and then we will close our time in verse 31. Rejoice, Jesus loves the Father. Let's jump right in. Look with me again, please, at verses 28 and 29. Rejoice, Jesus is with the Father. Hear his words again. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, and here's the complex truth, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why does Jesus want us to rejoice? 
not only is it because he is going to the Father, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. That's, that's why he wants you to rejoice that he is not physically with you right now in this moment, and yet there's more. If you glance down and you look at verse 28, there's logical connections. There's grammar that moves us through these sentences. If, then you would have. If you loved me, then you would have rejoiced because, here's the reason, I'm going to the Father. But that's not all that Jesus has to say. There's another grounding statement. Because I'm going to the Father, why? He says, for the Father is greater than I. And so the first complex truth that Jesus is giving us about why he is going to the Father, it's because the Father is greater than him, he says in verse 28. And the question is, what in the world does that mean? If you are familiar with Christian history at all, you know that this passage has been excised from the Bible, pulled out, cut out, and used as a soundbite for all manner of heresy. So what we don't want to do is to misunderstand what Jesus says when he says the Father is greater than I. And, and in investigating and protecting ourselves from errors in these small, simple words is going to help us rejoice. Because it gives us a greater understanding of the relationship of not only the Trinity, but the Trinity's relationship to you and I as he relates to his creation. Some have wrongly misinterpreted Jesus' words to mean that somehow Jesus is some form of a lesser God. That's wrong. It's a heresy. Some have taken this to mean that at some point, yes, Jesus is divine, but at some point in the eternal past, this divine being, lowercase g God, came into existence. That's false. That's the ancient heresy called Arianism, and it's a heresy that still is alive and well in the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witness. It is false. This also teaches then that there is no trinity. And if you have no trinity, you have no gospel. If you have no gospel, you have no salvation. No trinity, no salvation. Others have misinterpreted Jesus' words here, the Father is greater than I, to imply that there's levels of difference within the Trinity, as if there's um, maybe more godness to the Father, if you could say it that way, and less godness to Jesus, because there's some greater than, less than thing going on here. That is also a heresy and an error. Both of these are grave heretical errors that change the gospel into a non-gospel. So again, how do we make sense of Jesus' words? Because these words aren't meant to lead us into error. They're meant to lead you into rejoicing. And the rejoicing that Jesus' word is meant to give us is to untrouble our troubled hearts in all the ways that we can trouble our troubles with troubled hearts. So again, how we make sense of Jesus' words. We need to be good theologians. We need to think about the context and fit this statement together with Jesus' other teachings. John 14, 28 doesn't come to us in a, in a vacuum. There are uh, 13 and a half chapters preceding this. So what's going on here? We, we've already encountered a number of truths from the lips of Jesus, even if we just confine ourselves to the Gospel of John. 
We need to remind ourselves of these and fit them together to understand and not misunderstand these words that the Father is greater than I. And for that, we rejoice. So John 1, 1 and 2. Do you remember those verses? These Maybe you have them memorized. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or John 5.18. I'm going to give a summary after I read these four verses. John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, Jesus was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So John 1 The word was with God and the word was God. And now John 5.18, Jesus is making himself equal with the Father. Or John 10.30. Jesus simply says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So you have I and the Father are one in John 10.30. And then the Father is greater than I here in 14.28. And then if you glance up in chapter 14 at verse 9, do you remember what Jesus said? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So these four passages, John 1, John 5, John 10, John 14, and we can multiply more. If we fit these passages together, as we've looked at them already, we have already discovered that Jesus is teaching that he is the eternal, uncreated second person of the Trinity. God the Son. That there's one God in three persons. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. Yet the Father and the Son are equal because they're the one God along with the Holy Spirit. Remember the hurting heads comment earlier? And yet this is the very means by giving us deep truth that Jesus is seeking to to comfort and give his peace, which we saw last week, to the apostles. And yet, the Son became flesh, now truly God and truly man. And when you read through John, read through the whole New Testament, some passages emphasize the divinity of Jesus without minimizing his humanity. And some texts seem to emphasize his humanity without minimizing his deity. And so when Jesus says here, the Father is greater than I, and that's why Jesus is going to the Father, and that's why they should rejoice, Jesus is not creating a division within the Trinity. Jesus is not contradicting other gospel passages in the Gospel of John, as if he were somehow less God, or a created being. Rather, as to his humanity and Jesus' present state of humility, think Philippians 2, although in the form of God he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. With his humanity, in the sense of how the Trinity relates to his creation, The Father is greater than Jesus. After all, Jesus is the Son, and the Father is the Father. And so you have that relationship. 
So to say this differently, as God reveals himself to creation, Jesus is indicating that God the Son incarnate takes on a role that is subordinate to the Father as a son, and yet is still as God as the Father is. Now, if your mind hurts, that's because we're talking about the Trinity in the Incarnation, these amazing mysteries, these mysterious mysteries of the gospel. But don't forget why Jesus is saying this. Because the more you understand who God is in all of his complex yet simple beauty, the more you understand who God is, your troubles shrink. The more you understand who God is, the sorrows and fears and the anxieties, the perplexities and more. Knowing that your life seems out of control because it is out of control. Because you can't control it as much as you try. And how much more so this chaotic world that we live in. And yet there is a big and glorious God comfortably seated on his throne who is perfectly in control and has exactly zero anxiety in him. Because he is unfolding his gospel plans. And so the apostles hear Jesus say, I'm leaving. They don't understand that he's going to die on the cross for their sins and ours. And yet Jesus is fortifying their minds. Building a gospel fortress of truth. And putting into their souls and their bones. So that when life falls apart and they see Jesus nailed to a cross. And put into a tomb for three days. And they're going to think it was all a sham and a lie. It's this truth here that no, Jesus is son to the father. The father is greater than him. And these big God truths are meant to draw out loving belief in our hearts. And therefore a humble submission to God and rejoice. This, this truth is meant to do something to the apostles' hearts and ours it's to fill you with believing love for Jesus. Believing love for the Spirit and believing love for the Father. And this is what Jesus is doing with the apostles and it's what his word is meant to do with you now. If you love me, Jesus says, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And their love, or rather the, the love of Christ was supposed to, rather, the apostles' love for Jesus was supposed to lead to their rejoicing for Christ because the Son is going back to the Father because He completed His mission. So there's an emotional irony here. I wonder if they had dejected faces, downtrodden shoulders, furrowed eyebrows, Perhaps even tears in their eyes. Their, their feet were clean because Jesus washed their feet. But then now Judas left to betray. And, then, and now he's saying about all oh, these leaving. And so the emotional irony is their hearts were troubled because Jesus was leaving. And yet Jesus indicates that they were to rejoice. Their sorrow was supposed to turn into joy. And now we, this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb and the outpouring of the Spirit... Now, church, we rejoice because Jesus is not here, because he did rise from the grave, he did ascend into heaven, and he is coming back. But right now we rejoice because Jesus is with the Father. And even more, church, 
we rejoice because Jesus has conquered Satan. Point number two, look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. Now, here again, moving from one complex topic, the deep doctrines of the Trinity, now moving to the next complex topic, as if Jesus is just speaking comfortably with his disciples, and as if they're sitting there nodding their heads, yes, we understand perfectly what we're saying. No, we don't know what you're saying, Jesus. Jesus just says to them, there's a ruler of this world coming, and he has no claim on me. What does that mean? And how does this truth untrouble us? Here Jesus speaks clearly and plainly of the devil, whom we already heard a few weeks ago, or rather saw in the Bible, enter Judas in John 13, so that Judas would leave to go betray Jesus leading to the crucifixion. But what does it mean when Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world? And what does it mean when Jesus says, he, Satan, has no claim on me? Now, the implication here is that the devil, or Satan, is the agency behind the evil and willful human actions and desires against Jesus, right? He filled Judas, and Judas wanted to betray Jesus. It's what he wants to do most of all, and so Satan is moving in Judas to go betray Jesus. And more broadly, when it says ruler of this world, it's pointing at the devil's agency behind all human evil. That does not remove the culpability or responsibility that every person has. If someone says the devil made me do it, that might be true, but that no way absolves a person of the responsibility they have before Christ for the sin that they sinned. So the devil is the agency behind evil. This helps us understand the illegal trials that are, that are about to come in a few pages. It helps us understand the cross, and it helps, helps us understand how Jesus describes Satan. So again, what does it mean that Satan is the ruler of this world, which Jesus says? And we could look at two other passages. For example, in Ephesians 2, the enemy of our souls is called the prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is even called God of this age, lowercase g. Now, here's the first thing to clear up. In, this, in a similar way that the Father is greater than I is a host of errors and possible misinterpretations, when we hear Jesus call Satan the ruler of this world or the prince of the power of the air or God of this age, there are cultural ideas that get attached to the identity of the evil one that are not biblical. They're false. These titles do not in any way indicate that the devil is an equal but opposite foe to Jesus. And that's the pop culture view as if a sort of baptized version of yin and yang. That is not true. Jesus is the creator of all things, including the creation of the devil before he fell. 
It is false to think that all creation belongs to Satan, but the heavens belong to Christ. That's also a false perspective. So not only is it false to think that they are co-equal foes and we don't know what's going to go down between them, it's also false to think biblically that the created realm, the physical realm, even though he's a spirit, is where he is uh, rules and reigns, but the heavens are where Jesus reigns and the kingdom of Christ has no bearing on the physical realm. That is also false. Creation has never stopped being the realm of God's kingdom. It's just in the process of, process of insurrection and filled with rebels. How can I say this? In the Gospel of John, one of John's favorite vocab words is the word world. And what can make John tricky to read is he uses world at least three different ways. Sometimes world means the physical creation, the stuffness of us. It's the physical world. Sometimes that's what it means. Other times, world can refer to the human inhabitants of the world. We saw it in John 12. And, it, and world is a contrast to Jews and the world. So the Pharisees are standing there. And these two Greeks walk up to Jesus and they say, see, look, the whole world has gone after him. So there's an example that sometimes John uses the word world to mean simply humanity that's not Jewish. It's like a synonym of Gentile. But most often, most often in the Gospel of John, he uses the word world as a synonym of darkness, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and more. And when the, John most often uses the word world to refer to darkness, it also refers to the world referring to human hearts, human minds, and cultures of the world in rebellion and opposition to God. So creation, uh, people who aren't Jews, and then most often the world in satanic opposition to all things God and all things his covenant people. When Jesus says ruler of this world, it's equivalent of Jesus saying ruler of this present darkness. He is referring to the world system that is a cancer inside of God's kingdom, which Jesus will excise and irradiate when he comes back on that last day. So ruler of this darkness, ruler of this world, the term ruler is also used in many different ways in the New Testament. It doesn't only mean king. So uh, John uses it to refer to the rulers of the synagogue, right? the elders in the synagogue. Refers it to various levels of government, um, governmental powers, and even kings, rulers of nations. So ruler of this world or ruler of this darkness, ruler, the point here is that the devil is not a king. He does not have a throne. 
but he is pure, evil, and malevolent spirit. So when he tempts Jesus and promises to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world, it's not because Satan is King Satan. It's because he's the demonic force behind all those worlds in opposition to Jesus. Behind all the rebellion to God, including human kingdoms on the earth. So Jesus tells the apostles, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Listen to this description of humanity outside of Christ. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, you, every single one of us, when we were outside of Christ, and friend, if you don't know Christ, please hear this very sobering and fearful description the Bible gives to you to define your life from God's perspective, meaning the truth. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The portrait here in Ephesians 2 is that all humanity, me before the Lord saved me at the age 21, all of us before Christ are depicted as simply living these uh, fleshly lives, our fallen human natures, living willfully and happily in them because there was a course, there was a path, a trail, a pattern that we followed, and it was a pattern and course and trail established by the prince of the power of the air. Think ruler of this world. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, another description of the activity of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, when 2 Corinthians 4 refers to Satan as the God of this age, again, age represents the fallen human rebellion, which he somehow motivates and moves, as do his demons. The devil, though, is not divine. There is different ways that the word God, theos in the Greek, is used. And the vast majority of times is referring to the Trinity. But in this case, it's referring to the malevolent spirit who has power over humanity. And in that sense, lowercase g, God. So when Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming, he's talking about the one who has power and authority over the world in rebellion to Jesus. The devil is the arch insurrectionist in God's kingdom, the great opposer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and he has no claim on Jesus. What does that mean? It means that the devil had a claim on Adam. Our first father, who plunged the whole human race into sin, mischief, and mayhem, Jesus is the last Adam, who is unlike the first Adam. Unlike the first Adam, who was quickly and easily deceived by Satan, Jesus has already overcome the devil in the wilderness temptations. John doesn't record that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Jesus has already overcome the wilderness temptations and all the satanic traps set against Jesus in his ministry. Remember, Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the true and greater Adam who didn't just succeed where old Adam failed. Jesus is the true and greater Adam who also succeeded where you and I have failed. Jesus' life was perfect and sinless, both in its love and obedience to the Father. And so everywhere that you and I have failed and fallen daily and repeatedly, Jesus never did. He is the sinless God-man, and He alone in all that exists is the one who can only go to the cross in our place for our sins. And Jesus took that penalty You were supposed to go to the cross. You were supposed to take God's wrath. You were supposed to take the heat of his displeasure and anger against you for an eternity in hell. But Jesus went to the cross instead as our great substitute. Friend, if you're looking for salvation, stop looking everywhere else except for the cross of Jesus Christ and his goodness and his greatness. Jesus is the true and greater Adam, as we have recently sung And he has succeeded everywhere that we have failed. And he most importantly succeeded where Adam failed. You need a new head of a human race. You need to be transferred from out of old Adam and into the new Adam. And listen, here's why these words give me chills. When Jesus says, he has no claim on me. Because Jesus, when he says, arise, let us go from here... He is a hero who, even though Satan is gunning for Jesus and Satan is coming after Jesus, Jesus is actually gunning for Satan. And Jesus is coming against and for Satan to crush him and curb stomp him. Jesus is actually going against him. And he already told us this in chapter 12 when he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, the world, to myself. And we're going to see in John 16, 10, Jesus is going to say, The ruler of this world is judged. The gavel has dropped. The sentence has been meted out. And he is doomed. Understand that pop culture teaches us that Jesus is the ruler of heaven and Satan is the ruler of hell. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. Read Matthew 24. Read Matthew 25. God made hell for Satan and his demons and unbelievers who go there. Satan fears hell. 
How about these two passages, Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 in both chapters. Listen to what Jesus has done. I've got to give you a spoiler alert. I've got to tell you what happened when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then when he rose from the grave, here's Colossians 1. He, Jesus, has delivered us. Rather, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice the two different words, domain of darkness and kingdom. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus. Why? Having forgiven some of our trespasses. Oh, what does your Bible say? Are you looking at it? I'm pulling a fast one on you. What does your Bible say? All of your sins. Guess how many sins are included in that small, little, very theologically pregnant word, all. All. And it turns out in the Greek, guess what all means? All. Same with Hebrew. All. And Aramaic. It turns out that when Jesus died and Jesus rose and God transferred us from the kingdom from the domain of darkness excuse me to the kingdom of his beloved son having forgiven us all of our trespasses that is past that is present and that is future and so that truth doesn't make us want to sin more it makes us want to sin less how verse 14 of colossians 2 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here's some more good news. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished many things. And Colossians 2.15 includes the conquering, specifically the disarming, of Satan and all of his demons. That's what's included in the concept of rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame. And I think it hints at, hints at all of the beastly kingdoms in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. What looked like the greatest defeat of good in the death of Christ, Christ turned into the greatest defeat of evil through his resurrection. Because evil, the devil, had no claim on Jesus because he is the righteous and he is the holy one. And so, church, apply your troubles and sorrows to that. To which Jesus says, rejoice, Jesus has conquered Satan. And that moves us then perhaps to the, well, to the last complex truth, but perhaps the most exquisite of all. Rejoice, Jesus loves the Father. Look at verse 31. But, right, so, so the ruler of this world is coming, he has no claim on me, but... I do as the Father has commanded me. Why, Jesus? So that. 
the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Despite what appears to be evidence to the contrary, Jesus betrayed, Jesus crucified, Jesus died, Jesus buried, we are to rejoice. And in these verses that we have been tra traversing, not just this morning, but these past weeks in John 14, Jesus has given us many reasons to rejoice instead of being troubled. Jesus leaving is so that the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. So we rejoice. Jesus leaving is to go to prepare a place for us and to return and bring us to himself. And so we rejoice. Jesus' leaving would lead to the Father pouring out his spirit to indwell us forever. And so we rejoice. And Jesus' leaving would lead to him giving us his peace. And so we rejoice. And now here, Jesus' leaving would be the defeat of Satan. And so we rejoice. That's why they should rejoice and why we should rejoice. Because Jesus is risen. Jesus is conquered. When we see the baptisms take place at the beginning of second service, when those saints go into the water, one of the things that it pictures is the gospel of Jesus' descent into the grave and his resurrection out of the grave. Jesus is risen. But in these last words, Jesus reveals another reason why you must rejoice that Jesus is leaving. Jesus gives us another reason why we ought not to be troubled despite what our eyes see, minds think, heart feels, and more. There is a reason that rises above all these other reasons. Even Jesus atoning for our own sins, there is a reason above all the reasons that fuels our rejoicing in our triune God. There is a reason that rises above all reasons that makes you and me secondary objects in the gospel, not primary objects in the gospel. There is a love that God has for us, but there is a superior love that God has, a primary love that leads us to love God. So the question is, did you see it? Did you hear it in the text? Look again. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. We are correct to always proclaim, as so often Scripture does, that the cross of Christ is the chief evidence of God's love for us and His justice against our sin. If you have come in this morning and you doubt God's love for you, Look to the cross and see Christ there hanging, bruised, beaten, and bleeding for the joy set before him. Jesus told us greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Look to the cross for the greater love of God in Christ. Yes, see the love of God in Christ on the cross. But there still remains a greater love than God's love for us on the cross. Did you see it? Did you hear it so that the world may know 
that I love the Father. Yes, all that Jesus said and did was for our loving salvation. But more than that, all that Jesus said and did was to display to the whole world Jesus' love for the Father. You're to read the Gospels. You're to consider the incarnation, his sinless life. All that he did was first and foremost a display of his love for his Father. Yes, Jesus' incarnation was not just a display for the love of, of us. It was even more a display of his love for the Father, as I quoted Philippians 2 earlier. Humbling himself, becoming a slave in our place, was to show not just that he loved you, but even more so, he loved the Father. Jesus' sinless life, perfect obedience, magnificent teaching, was not just a display of love for you. It was a display of his love for the Father. Jesus' crucifixion for our sins was not just a display of love for us. It was even more a display of his love for the Father. As the disciples rise and prepare to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reveals at the heart of the gospel of God's love for us is a deeper intra-Trinitarian love of God's love for God. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Believer and unbeliever alike are to look to the cross Hear the gospel story, whether received or rejected, but to know that Jesus declares the whole gospel story exists primarily because the Son loves the Father. And because the Son loves the Father, it overflows into the Father and Son applying their love for us through the Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we ought to marvel and rejoice that Jesus loves the Father and manifests that love through his loving obedience. Rejoice, church. Jesus is with the Father. Rejoice, church. Jesus has conquered Satan. Rejoice, church. Jesus loves the Father. Amen? Lord, we thank you for how magnificent you are, and now ask that you would overwhelm and overflow our hearts with gospel joy to sing your praises and worship you. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.